0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. you ready for this,
1: by the way? I'm so honored. This is like slightly a pipe dream, so...
0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Here's the thing. My guest today is a super important writer and figure in the culture, Soman Chinani. But what's more important to understand, and it's hilarious that you just said, uh, oh, it's a pipe dream... Soman has spent more time in my kitchen, in my house, with me in like sweatpants, I mean the opposite of any sort of a fancy or formal interaction, than certainly like any guest on the show other than Amy or um, Levine. So uh, yeah, nothing to worry about, Soman,
1: and welcome. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny because you knew me really before I had a creative career. So I remember I would tell you like, oh, I'm working on something, something's happening, but I'm sure you hear that all the time. I, I was thinking about this.
0: So Soman is most well known for being the author of the series of books that started with The School for Good and Evil. The sixth book in the series, fifth book, fifth book in the series just is about to come out. Yeah. And tell me what's it called? It's called The Crystal of Time. And... um but before Soman had written or even had made the deal for School for Good and Evil, he was a tutor. He had a fascinating life that we're going to get into. Went to Harvard and uh, was a tennis player and uh, was a filmmaker and went to film school and made award-winning shorts and all this stuff. But by when I met Soman, my son was in ninth grade. I got permission to say this part, and he was uh, his biology tutor. And uh, – normally a tutor comes into the house and the last thing you want to do really is spend a lot of time interacting with that person. But Soman somehow became, and this isn't a cliche thing, a part of our family. He's, he became, he and Sammy are like best friends to this day. Uh, he's close with Anna, our daughter, and Soman and Amy talk three times a week. So he really did, now this is 10 years ago, become nine years ago or something like that? Yeah, it was uh, probably about nine years ago. Yeah. Um, a member of our family and I got to watch you the amazing privilege for me, dude, was mm. to get to watch you go from somebody who had this dream, this quiet dream of what you wanted to be, someone who's willing to adapt, change courses in order to get there and then who worked rigorously to get there. And um, you didn't complain and you didn't uh, – you weren't asking for co- our content. You mm. never asked – you know, you tutored other families that were successful in your yep. business. Yep. You never asked for contacts. You, you didn't make any of the mistakes. Any conversation you had was always uh, – like you were aware you were talking to people who were successful in the arts. But it seems to me you gave a lot of thought to the way you were going to comport yourself in that situation. Is
1: that true? I think it was that I knew the work was the most important thing. And I think I had seen so much of people who relied on networking. And networking gets you nowhere. Like one thing I learned in high school yes. was don't be the popular kid. Be the kid who has the three or four best friends who will do anything for you. And be the person who will do anything for your three or four best friends. And I've never gone to a networking event. I've never emailed an acquaintance for a favor. It's just not in my DNA. What I do is I make friends with people I love, and I bet on those people. Yeah, that
0: makes complete sense. And uh, as your approach, and I have questions about, Mm. because I know a bit about how you grew up, But I have some questions I want to ask about it because I find your your story inspiring but relatable. You know, Harvard's not that relatable Mm -hmm. and there are parts of your success now that might not seem relatable. But the part that's super relatable is you were a total outsider who through hard work and the
1: ability to adapt became successful in this very difficult field. I would say the other thing was that building the work ethic so that there was a time where I was writing during the day – from, let's say, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, and then going to tutor till 11 o'clock at night. And that was about six years. So to be working almost seven days a week, and this is why my dating life didn't start until my 30s, uh, because I was working seven days a week, basically like 14, 15 hours a day. And I think I'd go to sleep every night completely bone dead. But I remember telling myself, this is training for when it happens. It meaning whatever it was going to be. But I felt like, and now that, you know, writing is my full-time career, I find it easier than those days, (laughs) like in terms of just like... I mean, you do torture yourself in the writing of these um, books, though, and you do disappear. I do. I I, I do. And also I make it harder than it needs to be. Like um, most books from my age bracket are usually about 40 50,000 words and mine are close to 200,000. So Right, I heard you say that you only regret about the second book is it was too short. Too short. And it was what 180? It was uh, 450 well, I, pages and I still I, thought I like still was not happy, you know. Oh, you didn't felt like you didn't give them enough. Well, all right, let's
0: let's go backwards in order to in order to go forwards. Mm-hmm. Let's let's um It's funny. It's just sitting here. I'm I'm looking at you and it. I'm just so happy and as I always <laughs> am by what you were able to do for yourself, because watching some, you know, it was one thing when I it happened to me, but when it's happening to you, you can't really appreciate the sort of binary on-off nature of the difference between wanting it and then having
1: it. But also, the, I think the other thing that you're you're Clearly. sort of responding to at a at a deeper level is that. Even though your, uh, I was like going from basically nobody to having some sort of creative career. At the same time, you were going from a successful filmmaker to then the stratosphere a billion. So our lives were weirdly parallel and following the same parallel track, just it, on different sort of frequencies. But I understand why you'd say yes. I understand why you'd thing.
0: say that for sure. Y- yeah, that that time. Well, yeah, well, you lived through the disaster that was Run a Runner with me, and I would tell you. I'm going through a really hard time, which I knew, I knew even then, like for you still wanting to do the thing and not doing it, it still seemed like, well, you're still, I remember once you said, well, you're still making a movie in Puerto Rico, but it was like, well, yes.
1: Yeah. Now you can relate to that. hundred percent. Oh So much
0: more. As you've gone to the travails of getting
1: this cool for good and evil movie made. Yeah, oh, my God. And the idea that, like, you, you get so used to the thing of, of anything, any break, any, anything getting made is a good thing. But then you realize, no, that's not true. It's not, <laughs> true. <laughs> it's um, not true. So
0: let's go back to Florida where you mm. grew up. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about the environment? Here, here's how I want to frame it. The mm-hmm. environment in which you were raised. And I also want you to talk about within that. The kind of pressures that were put upon you externally
1: and internally to yeah. succeed. So to give a, talk a while. Give a global mm.
0: understanding of that.
1: I think I grew up sort of shaped by two different pressures. Pressure number one, and this cannot be underestimated, even though my parents sort of dismissed it as, as a thing, and they still will, is that I was really one of the only people of color at my school and on my right. island. I lived on an island off Miami called Key Biscayne, and when you walk around and everybody is white, you sort of internalize the idea that that you don't belong and you're different and at a, at a place where you can't rationalize your way out of it, you know, and, and it's just always there. You feel like, you know, if someone doesn't pick you for a team or you don't get asked to the dance or something, it, you internalize that's that's the reason at the same time. Uh, they were, you know, very sort of like into achievement as a way to gain love. But that's sort of the classic, you know, immigrant family story. And my parents were no different. Talk
0: more about that achievement as a way to gain love.
1: I think that that a lot of immigrant parents, because they work so hard to get to where they are, they're afraid for their kids because they, they don't know the path to success in this kind of foreign country other than, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer or work in the family business or or something, you know? So getting good grades to them somehow translated to you will have a happy life, you know?
0: And, and did they tell you, hey, you're smart enough to get these good grades? Or was it just, that doesn't matter, dude, just do what you have to do? And you're of Indian descent, descent. yes, he, that's why peop- when you say a person of color. so. You were the only person of Indian descent, or there was one other Maybe person? Maybe there was
1: one other person at the school. And were there no black people at the school? Not that I remember. Maybe right. one in my later years, but it was very, very, you know... And so like, you're aware of your otherness. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that... But they never told me to get good grades, because here's the twist, is that my older brother was the one who got all the pressure, and I watched that if he did well, everyone was happy, right? So I came out of the gates from third or fourth grade with this with this very clear sense of do well and... You're already the middle child. No one cares about you because no one cares about middle children. So if you do well, you will suddenly sort of like have your own spotlight, right? And so I became the kid obsessed with doing well to the point that by eighth and ninth grade, my parents had to be like trying to pull me back. So, you know, I think in a way they created a monster.
0: Can you, t- that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's still who you are. Can yeah. you talk about. <laughs> Not a monster, No, you're a very generous and giving person, but you are – and especially, like you said, to those that you care about and let in, and it can be a wide berth of people. Are, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're generous and kind and will go the thousandth mile. And, and, I mean, you kept tutoring kids after you were a famous and successful author because you'd committed to their families. So that, your sense of purpose and duty and all that stuff. But can – sorry, can you talk a little bit about the way in which they would dismiss this idea of otherness? I, I'm Come interested on. in that because – that kind of um, denial of identity, mm. services in
1: your work, but it's also uh, something that artists often face. So, talk about it. I think a, a lot of creativity comes from anger, right? So, it's yeah. sort of like suppressed anger that you, you can't really make sense of. And I remember I sort of would hold this in. And then there was one day I remember sitting on the couch. Ca- I remember the day so clearly sitting on the couch with my dad. And my dad's like, Why are you always in a bad mood? Um, he goes, you're always in a bad mood. And I said, you don't understand what it is like to go to my school and be me because at the time I was also in the closet. So like, that was, a, you knew was under, you were gay, but you yeah, couldn't yeah, talk couldn't about say, it. You didn't
0: talk about your parents. I
1: was already dealing with being Brown. So like being Brown and being too skinny. Cause also at that time I was six foot, like 110 pounds. What grade do you think this was? This was probably like uh, ninth, 10th grade, you yeah. know? So it was, there were too many things going wrong for me. And trying to explain to my dad, and he's like, that's not a thing. He goes, my office is all white people, and they all, they all think I'm the king. They all respect me. And I was like, you are paying them. Like, th- this is not no. comparable. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I paid everyone at school, they would love me. But, he but just, you
0: felt it that keenly, and you felt not only that it was something you were putting on yourself. Yeah. And so you didn't even get – so sometimes people could then take solace at home. But actually, they were saying to you, just fit in.
1: And my way of dealing with that was to achieve even more, to the point of, I mean, the classic story is they used to give um, subject awards at the end of every year. And there were 13 subject awards. And they, they gave it to whoever had the highest grade. So there was no like rationing of awards. It came down to who had the highest grade. My first three years, I won all 13. And my fourth year, I won 12. And I remember going home that night being absolutely miserable that somebody else got the 13th. In which subject? God, I think it was science. Some, like uh, some, ah. And it was that it had nothing to do with, like, looking back, I could have cared less about winning all of them. It was denying other people it. I think there was just so you much. You needed like, to have it. So much fury over that everybody else got a normal adolescence, and somehow I didn't. And I think one of the things that factors in my books now is the reason the worlds are so big is it's this fantasy adolescence that I think has been buried forever. And now that I get to express it, I've somehow in the last six years developed emotionally 20 years over.
0: Well, that probably, I mean, I'm guessing that has to do with the fact that you're able to exercise this stuff in mm-hmm. the work, but also that the work was accepted, 100%. right? That your version, your, right? Because what, what happens sometimes to, to an artist is you're walking around and you're seeing these relationships when you're in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. and You're seeing these dynamics and nobody, is telling you I see it the same way in fact they're telling you you're nuts 100% yeah and so that creates a split in all of us I mean this is what I think a lot of us yeah. right, Creates yeah, some yeah. kind of a split reality because mm. I see things but I'm being told what I see isn't necessarily real right but then now you do this thing and the world says oh yeah this is what it feels yeah. like and it it settles something in you in a way right
1: well in school for getting evil there's there's the two schools. There, there's the kind of Disney-esque school for good, where all the like beautiful and like smart and sensitive people go, and then the school for evil is where they all, all the outcasts go. And so all the kids of color are in the school for evil. And originally, my, my editors were like, "You can't do that," and I'm like. Yeah, I can because that's how they feel. That's how a lot of us feel going to these schools, right? So, like in a Disney-fied world, of course, every kid of color is going to end up in the outcast school because that's how they see themselves. And then brilliant. my job and was brilliant to, insight. And yeah. My job was to humanize them so that at the end of the day, by the by the end of reading *School for Good and Evil*, you're always rooting for the evil. Yeah, kids. you're redefining those <laughs> terms instead of because they
0: were put on, and then you're redefining them. One hundred percent. So this was my second question mm. to ask you. Um, was talk about fitting in the ways you were able to have some social success and the ways in which you felt like an outsider. So because you're not – my perception is you're not someone who walks in the room and sits in the corner and is unable to express no, yourself, no, yeah, your yeah. needs, your wants, right? Um, and I – so I'm imagining that when you were in high school,
1: you found these groups. I was student way. council president. Right. I, I, I was president of the school because I was able to – to pretend and be what I needed to be for everybody. Because, you like, I was a good observer. And understanding, like, okay, why why is that loser, like, loved by everybody when he's not smart, he has nothing interesting to say, he's not even particularly good-looking? And you start to realize that so much of it is based in in playing into these social structures, you know? And so I just was so able to... how did you to, play into them? I think I started to realize that, it's the thing that defines my work, which is you have to realize what everybody thinks you are and then purposely subvert it. So I assumed everyone thought I was the nerd, right? So to, to my junior dance, I asked literally like the druggy, crazy girl, and she was so like shocked. And then she was like, oh, this will be good for my image if I go with you and like, do you know what I mean? Like I would do things that like occasionally would pop the bubble and that ultimately I think made all the difference, you know? And I also fell in love with the captain of the basketball team and found my way to becoming his friend. And did so the, he know you were in love with him? No, well, not until years, years later. But You he's confessed like, oh, it to him when yeah, you were until both grown-ups. You know, like five or six years ago. And he was like, oh, now everything makes sense. You know, But at the time- Did you stay friends with him? Not really. I mean, I think like the 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 hardest part about being gay, and, and I now it's not so much a thing because of the way culture has evolved, but back then, it was very hard to imagine a life where there was going to be like a huge gay community. So you just fell in love with straight straight guys, thinking they would somehow you would somehow have to like convince them. I don't like you didn't have. But any you other didn't options. try to convince them. No, you, you just pined. For you just him. hoped or dreamed and had your own secret fantasy life, which is again sure what ends up creating like that split personality we're talking about. Um, but see, I see. Yeah, but what know?
0: did that make you? So that kind of calculation that you mm-hmm. were able to do. Which speaks to you know how smart you are and the discipline that you have because most of us I think don't wouldn't like playing a role like that the amount of discipline that it takes and to remain a good person right because it's fun Kunan and we're able to do that and you yes. were able to do it without be- becoming a
1: bad person somehow because I knew I was doing it so explain I think when you when you know you're doing it and you feel like you're in jail and uh, you know you're doing this oh, so it hurts you mean it hurt you yeah you I mean because. For instance i wanted to be student council president i knew that was going to be key to like me jumping into sort of a a larger social structure where i would be accepted simply by my title right um i can't believe i'm telling this story but the kid i was going to run against uh i knew was going to win and so at the time i was treasurer of student council which wasn't even an elected position and I made them pass an amendment at a very sparsely populated meeting that said you could only run for president if you had been to three meetings because I knew he had only been to two. Sick. That's a sick move. So <laughs> it was th- things like so was that. Was he was he angry with you that you did that? Yes, I mean he, I thought he was going to kill me, but you know, it's and it's politics, <laughs> right?
0: So you just viewed the world, yeah, as stacked against
1: you 100 and it's because funny.
0: people were looking at you and this is important because it humanizes th- this idea that people were looking at you and mm. you felt well okay if you're going to decide who i am mm. then i'm free to 100%.
1: maximize who i can be it never felt wrong to me until years and years later when i looked back on all that stuff and was like Oh boy. Like that was just like, I was so driven by rage. And I think so much of my twenties and early thirties was rewiring my brain to not live on rage, you know? And I think that was a big issue. Have you heard me talk? I talk about
0: this a lot, that the idea that when you're young, Mm -hmm. it's great fuel, but it stops burning clean.
1: Rage stops burning clean. Yes, 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 It starts,
0: it can get you to a certain place. Yeah.
1: After which it just leaves too much residue. Which is why I think we both discovered meditation and and all the things that you have to do to burn clean again.
0: Let's talk about movement watches. Movement was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. Hey, I have one of these, and it's badass. I love the way it looks. I love the way it works. Nobody would know that it's not the most expensive watch in the world. It's kick-ass. Uh, I'm so happy. It's both badass and kick-ass. Here's the thing. With over 2 million watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Uh, you know what I, love? I love the fact that the company was started by two broke college kids who wanted to wear stylish watches but couldn't afford them. They started their own company, um, which, for me, it really ties into the idea. I can picture like the way Dave and I started writing stuff and then... You know, wrote rounders in the basement and ended up. Hey, so for the moment, drinking game. You can drink now that I mentioned rounders. Um, look, movement watches start at just ninety-five bucks at a department store. You're looking at four hundred to five hundred bucks. Moon figured out that by selling online, they could cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. They have classic design, quality construction, and styled minimalism. Sold over two million of these puppies. Look, you can get fifteen percent off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtmovementwatches.com. So Movement Watches is mvmtwatches.com slash moment. mvmtwatches.com slash moment. The watch has a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting real compliments on it since I put it on. Now's the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash moment and join the movement. At at that time, Solomon, did you know? Did did you know? Uh, I'm special in certain ways that mm-hmm. people. So it's not only that I'm calculating or I can figure stuff out. Did you know that? oh, fuck! They're just not seeing it. Um, I have certain gifts that uh, they should look at me and know. I'm
1: smart. I'm special. Or did you not know that about it? Because the, the faculty was seeing it. Do you know I what mean? I mean? So, that, the, so the teachers were seeing it, but it wasn't. I like to me, it was obvious that the faculty was going to see it because I knew kind of what I was like. I had, remember when Friendster was around. Yeah. My um, my tagline that I put for myself. I must have been nineteen or twenty, and I can't believe I wrote this. But my tagline was, "You have no idea what I'm capable of." And it was almost like a reminder to myself. But now you look at it and it's kind of creepy and, and dark. But I don't think I thought of it that way. I right. thought of it as like, there's Be, a lot inside.
0: You well, know? How much of this was fueled by wanting to get out of there? Like, did you have the thought that, like, because Harvard's not an accident. I know, I know from having watched a bunch of people now,
1: yeah.
0: as, as you said a long time ago to Sammy even, like, if that's what you want, mm. you have to go get that.
1: Yeah, it's but I didn't think it was going to be an escape because I didn't understand, I didn't know what the, okay, so if if my whole thing was achievement, I'm going to be the best at everything, then you get to Harvard, it's not like that stops. So I got to Harvard and my thing was, oh, now I have to be the best at Harvard, right? And I, I remember that starting to weigh on me, that that sense of achievement and that pressure, and it was as I got towards the end is when it all sort of fell apart. Describe that i had a complete nervous breakdown like uh, utter i was still in the closet by senior year i was i wasn't even doing work anymore because i just i couldn't bear it anymore i was sort of so withdrawn and and having anxiety attacks and it, all the stuff that used to burn as fuel had directed inward and i completely by senior year it was done it was like huh. either like i'd gotten to a very dark you place you genuinely realize you didn't like the person you'd become yeah, or I couldn't live this way. I think it was this the sense of, like, whatever way I had constructed my life in order to get through and survive was no longer going to work. And so I was in a corner, and it felt like I would wake up every day and be like, I can't live like this, but I don't know what that means, you know? Who and did you talk to, dude? No one. I mean, I didn't, have, I didn't did know. Did you have a best friend then? Yeah, but they all knew the, like, fun, shiny me, you know? And because I didn't know the real me yet, too, because it was too much anxiety and depression and stuff wrapped around it, you know? And I think... And you weren't... You were in the closet. Were you having affairs, at least? Nothing. Because it was, back then, it was harder. You didn't know what to do. Like, at, at Harvard, like, what's funny is... I, Senior year is when everybody came out, and everybody came out, like right as school was ending. And so everybody was gay. But like, not my first, you know, first three years, it was nothing. I remember, this is the best story, the president of the Crimson, who's now this extremely successful tech guy, was the only out guy at the time. And I, I beginning of senior year, I said, can I take you out to coffee? He's like, sure, because I was on the Crimson at the time. I took him out, and I, he was the first person I ever told. And I cried, and I was like, I'm gay, and like, I, I went on this whole thing. He just looked at me, and he was glaring at me. And I was like, what? And he goes, how many of these conversations do I have to have? (laughs) He goes, you all need to talk to each other. I don't care. You guys have to stop taking me out. I'm going out every week with somebody who cries to me about being in the closet. You all need to deal with it yourselves. And I was like... How many people are, like... so did that
0: that prompt you or prompt you into action?
1: Kind of. I mean, I think it was starting to to simmer that, like... Does he know you became famous? Yeah, I mean, we're... Then we ended up dating for a while and all that stuff. So that was a whole, like... He was one of the first people I I went out with. But I just think, like, you know, there was a lot to, to get through. And I didn't realize, like, the work it would take to rewire my brain and get to the place where I am now, where I don't even recognize that version of myself, you know? Uh... Would take almost ten years, you know. Were you making films then? No. So, because... so
0: you What did you think when you went off to school? Was it the lawyer, doctor, Indian parents, 100%. lawyer, doctor? I
1: became as soon as I graduated Harvard. I became a pharmaceutical consultant. <laughs> what was the but what
0: what what was the idea? And you did very very well at college. I mean, I know. Yeah, you no, finished, that's like, the other Top thing. of your class, right?
1: I was uh, at a four in my major. I was summa. I was like, that's the thing is, I got as close as you can to being like. At the top of Harvard, and whereas in high school it somehow gave me satisfaction to some extent, college was making me more and more miserable. When did you start to think
0: that the arts were where you belonged, and how did you allow yourself to think it, and was that as hard to tell people uh, in your life as the fact that you were gay? Like, how did that all...
1: Surface? I, Did it all bundle together? I didn't know what. I knew that when I was young, I wanted to make movies, but I didn't know what that meant. So I just sort of d- dropped that completely. And then uh, when I was a consultant, pharmaceutical consultant, I was. I hated my job so much. I wanted to die. I was just so miserable. So I would sit in the corner, pretend I was staffed, and work on a novel. And um, it was a fairy tale based novel. And the only thing that I had to go on was the idea that Harry Potter had somehow found an audience because there was something about that world where I understood the intensity of creating that sort of huge universe that I responded to. And I think without Harry Potter, I don't think I would be here today because I didn't realize that could exist. I didn't under, I didn't know what children's literature was any of that stuff. But, but wasn't your first stop to the making movies film school? Can no, it was it? first writing this this crappy novel. Right. Um that you know didn't go anywhere. I didn't even send it out or whatever. And then I got fired from the job. Yeah, cuz you were writing novels on the uh, corner. <laughs> God. And then I spent a year trying to fix my brain. And that's when I did a lot of like soul searching, a lot of just wa- I walked up and down Manhattan. I was on unemployment, so luckily my life was paid for and I wasn't spending much money. So I was just walking around. I would just spend the days walking, kind of like trying to like understand the way my brain worked and why it was getting adrenaline kicks off of being angry all the time. And It was about a year of this. A year of you trying to figure out
0: why it had led you, yeah. why acting in this way that you were rewarded for was no longer rewarding
1: you. And I stopped every single possible addiction, which ended up lasting. Like I didn't watch um tv for a year i didn't um drink alcohol that entire year i didn't eat sugar that entire year i stayed on a very strict diet i tried to like limit every type of stimulus to understand what was at the base of my brain it was almost like um concussion therapy yeah like uh dark room therapy and it was a lot of that and so no stimuli and then i started to understand myself and at the end of that year i remember it was um october 28th i woke up one day what year it was 2004 yes and I remember I woke up that day and it was it was like you're gonna to apply to film school It was like a, as clear uh, it was the most crystal clear idea went to the computer, I knew I was going to apply to Columbia. I looked up Columbia the deadline was in three days it was almost like my brain knew and had planned the entire wow. year out I applied, got in, and that was it and so it was just like and then you threw yourself into I'm gonna learn how
0: to do this tell stories, make film
1: well i i had some time before I went because I wasn't going to go until the next year. So I worked for Mira Nair, the director. And then when I went to film school, I think more than other people who had just come to sort of like dabble in it, I was like a man on a mission. I was like, I had worked all my shit out. And so, you know, I really came in being like, how do I tell a story? How do I, how do I, you know, become an artist, a professional artist? Well, yeah,
0: I wrote, what I wrote down was like, how did this idea of succeeding in the arts express itself to you? And I don't want to just say being an artist, because for you, it's a, the mere act of doing the art while satisfying isn't enough. How do, it was, a, it still isn't enough, right? So no. you're able to synthesize now uh, that it's not just about achievement; it's about achieving at something that you think has purpose, matters. But right, your decision would have been, I'm going
1: to become a filmmaker, but I'm going to succeed in the arts. Yeah, it was that. How do you make a career out of this? You know, and so the difference is, I think a lot of people do a day job and then go home and try to do their art, but by then they're often very tired and want to go to sleep or have other things. And my whole thing was, okay, the art is going to be the thing. You need to figure out a way to make a living without disturbing that, you know, and that was the structure and tutoring was the sort of vehicle to be able to
0: make that happen. You, you, you figured out, well, if I, I can tutor
1: because I'm good at that
0: shit. Yeah. I can talk to these parents and these kids.
1: Yeah, and also at the time that, like, I wasn't so far from high school that I remembered everything. Because the great thing about being good at all 13 subjects in order to win all those trophies was I could tutor anything. I could tutor literally anything. So I could be a full stop shop for a lot of these families. Like, sometimes I was at houses three or four times a week to do all the siblings and all their different subjects.
0: Blinkist is real fun for me to talk about because uh, I love to read. I love learning. As you know, if you listen to this podcast, I'm fueled by curiosity. The thing of it is, especially with nonfiction books, I find I can't always make the time. I'll, I'll hear people talking about a book, a concept, an idea, um, and I'll want to read the book, but I, I'm shooting the show, i um, editing, and what I can do is use Blinkist because what, what Blinkist does is... They take all the key learnings and takeaways from the books, the need-to-know information. They have it from thousands of nonfiction books, and they condense them into 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them. Blinkist is made of busy people like you who want to get to the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. They have an audio feature. They make it so easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. It's easy to endorse this because there's, like, no downside. Uh, to getting the key takeaways. Look, if you love what you got, go get the book and read the whole thing. If you just love the key takeaways, boom, you have it. Nobody has to know whether you read it or whether you didn't uh, read it. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com moment to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com moment to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com moment. Talk a little bit about the culture you found. And then we're going to get back to your journey. But yeah. you have a very particular and special insight mm. into a few aspects of this New York City wealthy, educated wealthy mm, yeah. um, substrata in a way, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the culture you found and what your approach was to, to tutoring these kids, the pressures, how what you'd learned? Because different than other people – These kids, I watched, they really felt like you had an interest in helping them get to where they wanted to go.
1: The guys mostly. I mean, what's funny is when I started tutoring, I was about 80% female clients, 20% male. By the time I finished, I was almost 100% male. Because the way I operate was, even from high school, I'm just, when I hit a goal, I don't I'm not effusive about it because back in high school, it never brought me joy. Right? It was just part of the the thing. So I'm pretty tough, and and I think with a lot of the the boys I was tutoring, they're so used to being princes of Manhattan. Do you know what I mean like yeah. they come from wealthy families, they uh, have everything in the world. Everybody loves them, you know. And so I wasn't as impressed as they wanted me to be because I was there to focus on the goal. So like you know, if they wanted a high SAT score. That's what we were going to get. But I think what they started to, to see with me is that they weren't going to get BS from me. I was going to tell them the truth. But So the flip side is that what did you
0: notice about the way those kids were being socialized, about mm. the expectations they were groomed to have? I, I want to talk about this as a way to get some insight into the, 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 yeah, the yeah. world a little bit.
1: What, what I didn't understand is a lot of them, most of them, grew up with extreme amounts of wealth, right? And so when you would ask, okay, what are you going to do with your life? What do you want to do? What makes you tick? All these questions, you know, to try to to try to understand, because I was helping them with college applications also, like, what's your story? What are you going to do? All of them would be like, oh, I want to either do what my dad's doing or I want to work in finance or business. And it was this idea of because they had been groomed into wealth, they had to somehow pursue wealth. And I was like – but it's the opposite, right? You've, you've been afforded the chance to now go after the thing you actually want to do. And that is why I think they started opening up to me because they'd never been told that before. They'd never been told, like, you have the opportunity to actually do what you want to do.
0: But you wouldn't tell – it doesn't seem to me you would tell it to them in a way that would release pressure, right? Because You weren't saying to them, we'll do whatever you want. Yeah, right? yeah no, no, You were saying to them, give yourself
1: options. Yeah, or or, or start thinking about – like, for instance, Sammy – Sammy's such a genius. Like, of all the kids I ever tutored in my entire life, I've never met somebody whose brain is just such a sponge and can operate on so many levels. And so he can do anything in the entire world. And so what I kept telling Sammy is, like, you can do anything you want. You know, I'm sure everyone will support you whatever. But... What's sustainable? What's professional? What's gonna actually work? What's gonna pay off? Like all these questions of that you'll apply to a basic job in finance or something. You still have to apply to your creative career. So you yes, you know, but of course, yeah, of course, he went his own way, and he won't let me. I mean, he'll already want me to cut that out of this, but I won't <laughs>
0: because you said it, not me, and I won't comment on it. But what did I, I want to also talk about this because the. I watch the way that these kids have all been raised and the advantages that they have, and mm-hmm. so I can't understand when I see rich people. And look, um, obviously I'm a successful person, uh, but um, and I, you know I, uh, I'm successful enough that it's it, it's already an unfair, crazy thing. But yeah. but where I live in New York, I'm not even in the top. Like they're all oh, wealthier than uh, Amy. They're I'd all richer that. than us, yeah, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just I just have television and movie money Uh, it's not the same it's It's by a factor i mean 50 times 100 100%. it's crazy right yeah yeah but when i look at people who have been able to give their kids that stuff and grew up that way and and don't understand the structural advantages it drives me insane Mm. can you talk a little bit of what you noticed because you were you grew up in some privilege but you didn't grow up rich No, no no and your parents i mean you went through tough Financial, right? There was a reversal when you were growing up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They didn't – my dad didn't start doing well. He was almost bankrupt for most of my middle school and high school years. He didn't get successful until – Right. So you lived through watching that happen.
0: 100%. But what advantages did you notice that most of these New York City kids have? And not just the connections because, Mm -hmm. sure, they have some connections. But – and I guess the disadvantage is the coddling. Yeah. But what sort of advantages as you got exposure to this – because you were the most – You were the most popular, sort of you were the person everybody wanted to tutor their smartest kid in whatever subject. And you were very expensive and people were willing to pay it. So you were in these homes. What what did you notice that are the advantages they have, you know, as a writer and with the sort of calculating part of your book?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because for me, I was reliving a lot of high school by tutoring some of these kids, you know, because they're granted automatic status by the function of their families, right? And so, you know, the idea that, but then you also realize all the structures, right? So if a kid is is rich and good looking and, and has all the things that maybe in Miami would have made them king of the school, here, like there's somebody who's 10 times richer and is modeling in Italy, you know? So the competition I thought was so out of control here that what it did is it made kids, and this is what I thought was fascinating. I felt like it drove kids to go for safety here, even though they were from the richest families and were afforded the, the opportunity to do anything and had complete security, it made them panic. And in order to ensure their security, they'd go work for a bank during the summer, or they'd go work for Goldman, or they'd go work for you know uh, the BCG or something that was safe and simple because it meant that like they were a mo- like they were embodying the, the values did, of. The did family. they seem to know there was a safety net? Maybe, but I think at the same time, it was the understanding of they had to somehow continue it. You know, it's this idea that like in order for huh. the wealth to, to mean anything, they had to add to it. I don't think – I very rarely saw any kids who were like, oh, I'm going to inherit this, therefore I can chill out. I felt like it put pressure on them somehow. Oh, that, that they, makes
0: sense to me because actually in New York, no, almost no, – not, not not legitimately, but almost no matter how much money the parents have – I guess the kid could be made to feel insecure that, well, it's going to be quartered or like I could see how that game would get played and they'd feel like, well, how am I going to live that same life, right? It's so it's so distorted. It's That's, so the richer twisted. the kid, yeah, the
1: richer the kid, the more I felt like they were driven to only care about a financial career. Really? Yeah, the, for sure.
0: And so that advantages them. In a certain way, because it eliminates a bunch of distraction for them. It yeah, targets also, where they want to go.
1: And also, the, the truth was, the parents, the richest parents, had the connections to get them what they wanted. So at the same time, it was all—it was a little bit of both. They could chill and do okay. It wasn't like they were—they knew they had to get into a certain kind of college or whatever. But once they got to college, they sort of chilled out and did whatever they wanted because their parent would get them the inter- internship or the job during the summer. And it was just part of this, like um, you know, d- dynasty where the the doors open for you.
0: What did you notice though about which ones? And don't talk about Sammy. Yeah, yeah. Taking Sam out of it. Yeah, yeah. We all know the ways in which he's <laughs> special. But the ones who um, who somehow had a motor where you could tell they were like you, they were going to go out and find a destiny. Yeah. Uh, versus the ones who were just going to lay. like was it innate? Was it something the parents did? Was it, what did you pick up about, because as transited to if someone's li- like listening
1: to this, you know, how did you, which kids were self-starters and right. why? What did you notice? You know, I think it's funny because for me, remember, I, I needed Harry Potter to, to sort of push me, right? And so the kids were able to break away from the cycle of wealth somehow and, and think about doing their own thing had a model or an idol that they that they went fascinating. after. fascinating right what right. do you mean yeah like you know like I always say like the best way to start as an artist is to dabble in your own version of fan fiction right so like yes. you're ultimately you can't invent something groundbreaking and brilliant your first time out so if you can find the thing that you love and find what's wrong with it and then try to fix it so for me the two things that intersected in my work in school for evil are I I was obsessed with Disney growing up and found it extraordinarily problematic for too many reasons to list. And I loved Harry Potter but found it quite sexless and uh, sort of normative in the way it presented good versus evil. Like evil is bad and good always wins. And I felt like if I can fix those two things, then I'll be able to do something different. So when I was seeing these kids who – you know, either idolize a certain artist or, or things like that, or often that they wanted to be a writer and I had been tutoring them for three or four years, or they wanted to be an artist and they had seen me like normal me go from tutor to then having a full-time career as it, even that little spark would be like, I felt like the kids who I was closest to were the ones who didn't idolize me, but, but were curious about the career they got the roadmap. The roadmap. They
0: got the roadmap in a certain way, which is huge. And I I mean, I've said this before on the podcast. It's important what you just said about not thinking you have to start out wildly original. Like even David Bowie's first records weren't wild. The very first things he did probably weren't wildly original. I mean, I know I definitely just started out trying to figure out how David Mamet wrote, right? It was like, how did David... Why did David... And it wasn't even probably a fully formed question in my mind. Yeah, yeah. It was just... um, man, I like the way that guy's dialogue sounds and Spike Lee's dialogue and Quentin's dialogue. So you took it apart. And the cones, and it was like, well, how can I make a rhythm? Mm-hmm. How can I make words that have a rhythm that feel like that? And then you find your own voice in the... in If you're rigorous with it, yeah. and you keep chasing it, eventually you don't want to mimic. What you want yeah. is to birth a voice out of the embers of those voices,
1: Everyone's right? paranoid about the mimicry. so So everyone's afraid, like... Uh, that that everyone's gonna be like, oh, Brian Koppelman writes like man and whatever, but if you actually put your soul in there and what you're doing is you're using the sort of vessel of the things you've learned, like we the books have my books have never once been compared to Harry Potter because they're they're too different. You know what I mean? Even though they're set in a fantasy school, but it's never happened. Even though she created the. The The template, everything. The the, the way that something like this can precisely exist. Exist. And even if it's in the same universe, it's a school. But they never get compared because it's to me just in the way that your work is to you. And I tell kids, like, this is what we work on when I do the college essays. Like, the first thing is I want to write about my grandmother. I want to write about my leader. And I'm just like, I'm going to die. Like, what is you? Like, where do you come from? What What makes you tick? And I'll just spend two or three sessions with them being like, almost like a therapist, like what makes you different? Like what are the highlights in your life? Tell me tell me moments that, that you remember, you know, above all others, things like that. And I think that's what I try to do also with my friends and, and, and my family and stuff, is try to get to the core of the person. And that's why I tend to have fewer friends than most people, because I can only really be friends that I can interact with, with people who ask themselves that question.
0: Well, you get right into the thing. I mean, the way that, uh... Your relationship with our family existed because you tutored Sammy for a couple of years, really only in ninth grade and then one other time for a tiny period of time. Um, And you you didn't tutor Anna, did
1: you? No. No, but you just would come over to our – I mean then you just kept coming over to our house to hang out. Because I think I also connected with all four of you because all four of you are such kind of deep thinkers and ask the right questions that I actually resonated with what I call your existential – each of your existential questions. You were really trying to get to the bottom of uh, to be the most rigorous professional artist possible, which is my obsession. We both obsess about the same things, which is why every time you write a tweet or anything, I'm like – glued to it and we're all reading we're both reading the same books all that stuff you know amy was you know dealing with her own question sammy had his own question anna's question at the time was which i love hers was the easiest for me to solve which was how do i exist in a school where i feel like an outsider and i was like oh this is easy well it was
0: great (laughs) because she was one of the two first readers of school for good and evil i know totally totally understood it she understood it completely but what i was what i was gonna say is um you would come over and uh Immediately, and even before you were a successful artist, we were all having real conversations. 100%. Real conversations about all this stuff. And it yeah, seemed like yeah. you insisted upon that in a very yeah. direct way. Or otherwise, why why waste the time?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it
0: feels like that's still your sort of – even about workouts. Like I'd found a fashionable workout. And when I went, the people said that you it was something you did. And I called you. And you were like – I tried it for three months. It doesn't really <laughs> Don't work. Don't keep, do it.
1: No, and, and and I think like it's just the way I, I operate is that I think because I spent those years in the dark room going through all the the rewiring of my brain and all that, I can only operate with people who've done work internally. If you're living by a script or you're living and you're asleep, I can't do it because Brilliantly I went through too much pain. <laughs> When well, you were doing it.
0: that year and you woke up with that idea, were you journaling then or not? Were you just walking and,
1: and thinking? I kept um, – you'll laugh. I kept uh, – it's so – now that I think about it, it makes me laugh too. I kept a little notebook and every day I would give myself a grade for how I felt. That's awesome. Because I was so obsessed with grades, right? So it was oh, the way I knew so how to good. think. so So I would be like F, F. You know. Then like slowly I would see it go like D minus F. Would you write a little bit about why? No. No comments.
0: Just just, just write. You don't want the (laughs) teacher comments softening it. You just want the actual number. That was it. Just like the number. The letter.
1: Over the course of like four months, you see it go from like an F to like a C minus. And you're like, okay. So anytime I was in like the darkest, deepest hole, you know. Were you talking to anyone? Mm -hmm. Did I have a therapist then? No. What about a person, a friend? No. I mean, yes, I had a couple of friends who knew what I was going through. And, and I you could would talk, connect with them? Yes. So I, I had friends, but, but no one, I, there was no one who would understand. It was too deep. It was too dark and too deep, you know? And so. It's an amazing excavation that you did, man. And yeah, I think what it was was if I look back now medically, I think my brain was hemorrhaging adrenaline, all the stuff that I'd been holding in. And I think I went through a year of trying to detox the adrenaline. And so no one's going to be able to understand that because it was so primal. And like, I'll tell you a funny story. There was one day where I was, I could feel it and I went up and down in Manhattan. I remember stomping as hard as I could for 120 blocks up and 120 blocks down just as an experiment because I was researching adrenaline and all this. And the next day I woke up with zero soreness whatsoever. It was like, it never happened because that's how much adrenaline is stored up that you're just trying to get rid of. Yeah, and you were trying so to just blow it out.
0: Blow it out. And Let it, was, it go. Breathe. It was, I mean, it's you weren't breathing then, right? You weren't meditating then. You weren't breathing. You weren't
1: finding a way to detoxify on a daily basis. And years later when I started CrossFit and, like, I'd gotten so much further into meditation and all this stuff, one of the things my amazing trainer at uh, CrossFit NYC, this guy, Dave Stogzell, told me is that he goes, your entire body, like, is super strong and, and you have functional strength, but you're you'll never progress because you're trapped in startle position. Right. I was like, what does that mean? He Fantastic. Goes, your body is in P- permanent PTSD. And so what we worked on for almost a year was trying to get the muscles, now that I had gotten the brain to like get rid of its adrenaline, I had to get the body to to be loose again, which was so much work.
0: Startle you know? position is an amazing memoir title. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so good. Really yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Startle really position good. is great. Oh, my good. God. Um, It's like a New Yorker poem or a memoir title. (laughs) It's really good. Uh, The only thing I'm thinking of, though, also is financial security remained important to you. Mm. Because you weren't casting – so you cast off the negative sort of hyper-calculating out of a uh, desire to crush the other people. You wanted to eliminate – you wanted to cast, which is you know, uh, super. What, what we you wanted to cast aside the anger and resentment you had for being misunderstood as a kid, yes, 100%. because there's no reason to punish those kids anymore. They were also kids.
1: They didn't. Know. I have no you, residual I'm anything towards no, anything. You Wanted no. to let all that go. Yeah,
0: but it's not as though you then decided uh, I'm going to be a poet and I'm going to take my shoes off yeah, and yeah. I'm just going to walk the earth because. Y- you're able to, you know, you're able to be this highly functioning artist, but also kind of a highly functioning person in that you decided you wanted to have financial security. Mm-hmm. You wanted to live a certain way. Yeah. You want to keep your body in a certain kind of yeah. shape. So um, often people can't keep all that. They, they think if they want to be an artist, they have to kind of throw away um, any kind of nod to a normal life. Yeah you didn't tell yourself that you could throw away any sort of a thing to a normal life. Like you were determined
1: to do this, right? Well, I think it was also, I don't know if it was so conscious. I think it came from that year of sort of detoxifying and the years that came after with meditation and all those things. I learned that creativity was not a cerebral thing for me. It was very, it was a flowing thing. So I've written all five school for Evil books so far with no outlines, like I just show up, and there's hundred and eighty characters now in the series there's like seventy five intersecting plot lines. I have no notes, I have nothing. I just sort of show up and in order for that to happen, I realized that that was the gift I had right that like it would all sort itself out. The puzzle pieces will all go together, but I have to be i have to be a professional I have to be super clear headed I can't drink I have to be in like crazy good shape to be able to do it every day like and tour as much as I do like to be able to access the power, which is not mine, it's, it's you know, it's just innate. So I don't take credit for it. I don't get an ego kick off it. Um, the only thing I get an ego kick off of is being the manager of that talent, you know? Well, and so Talk about being the manager of it. Well, it's funny because I'm a huge Madonna fan, of well, pre-crazy Madonna. So like 80s and 90s Madonna. And she used to talk about being the manager. She's like, you know, the talent is the talent. But your job is to manage it and not take credit for it. You know your job is to to nurture it like like a real manager would like uh, a nervous, anxious artist, and so you know my job was to show up every day, you know do the work, and just measure doing the work as best I could as the goal, right and over time, see how can I make doing the work better and doing the work better came from sleeping better. Um, you know, eating right, like working out more. And so the way I judge success for me is how I felt emotionally writing books one through five, whereas one was complete torture and I still was struggling so much with my ego and all the things versus five, which is twice as long and was so kind of sweet. What do you mean struggling with your ego, Solomon? I think with one, it was my first one and I knew I had a, a three, I would signed up to do three at that point. And so it was this fear of if no one reads this, then I'm going to be a tutor forever. Like, you know, what am I going to do next? Uh, everyone has to read. Then, like, wild manic thoughts of like this has to be bigger than Harry Potter. Like, you just you're young. You were in
0: your head, and you were you were thinking about results, not about process. Hundred percent. And then you've trained yourself when you're doing. So I talk about this a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of hours in the day when it's okay to think about that other shit. Yeah. The time you can't is the two hours you're writing. Now I know you're able to write for like six hours, but that's insane to me. I have no, I have I no break conception of understanding I, I how somebody break does that.
1: I break it up in that like I write better again when I'm like physically exhausted, so I'll just like put in workouts and stuff to get myself tired. But I think, you know, the difference is now I just feel like whenever the voice tells me, "Oh, you just wrote like the best scene in the world." I actually know it's probably pretty bad because if if yeah, there's yes. the, if there's the critic telling you it's either amazing or bad, then it's neither. It just needs to be all it should really tell you is you did your work you today yes. go read it tomorrow and make it better again. I know the scene is perfect when I finish working on it, and then without even realizing it, I'm working on the next scene. Sure you know? for
0: me, for twenty four hours after I write a certain kind of scene, I'm real hopped up about it, and I really think it was great for for now with the show it's the, the period of time's gotten shorter yeah it used to be for the first 24 hours you really couldn't talk to me about it and then then i by, by, by but it's weird really by the 25th hour i am fully dispassionate ready to rip it apart ready to like oh no no the, that that half a page is garbage that one line work, like but in the beginning the way that i have to get my the thing that has to happen to me the, the yeah. kind of confidence to get the work done i have to believe that I'm a sorcerer for this period of time. But I've learned that, that means I don't show it to anybody then.
1: Yeah. What's well, also like when I've got notes on book one from the editor, every time I got notes, I would have a stomach spasm mm. and need kaopectate because I couldn't handle someone like, you know, like I just couldn't. I was so defensive. Every note I would be like, you're wrong. This is stupid. You're wrong. Whereas like book five, every time she gives notes, I feel this actually freeing feeling of, whatever is in this document I'm about to open is only going to make this book better yeah, because how I'm might make
0: the book better by I, reacting to this document and most it's hard, of it I way. might not
1: take all the notes because I know what to take and not to take well you know? when you're ta- and also i find i
0: um, when i'm when i'm tired ta- you know you talk about the state you're in you know it's trying to give me a note when I've been up eighteen hours for oh, five yeah. days in a row <laughs> and working and things it's way different than if i'm Come and had just slept and meditated it, it's entirely different the way that i oh, can oh, process oh, those yeah. things once you knew that financial security was a reality of some mm. sort where did you put the worry right because uh, you yeah. always had worry about basically your own potential and talent yeah could you realize it then you realized it
1: yeah and you got money where does the worry go okay one it moved to my personal life which got ignored <laughs> right immediately just moved long. over to there and so like you yeah, know which continues to be a saga of of you know misery, but I feel like at some point that will work itself out because it has to, or whatever. It'll find its way. The the other thing is then you think, okay, th- uh, I have this am- amazing friend Victoria Aviard, who wrote Red Queen, which is this great series that has done super well. Um, and we both talk about how we've had like B plus success, but like how okay, how do we get to A plus success? But of course B plus success is relative. It's it's again grades and stupid, but. You know, it's yeah. this question of like, what's the next? Do level? I have to redo
0: the uh, introduction and say, <laughs> <"Someone." laughs> Janani has had a B plus, who's a B plus successful author? It's so, so but the only, you mean only JK gets an A? It, it, is that is in your is, mind, is, is it like Sarah Dessen, does Sarah
1: get an A? Because no. it's been 20 years <laughs> of doing this work? <laughs> That's a, It's like, a, again, it's a, it's a stupid question, but I think it's not real worry because it doesn't Sarah actually Sarah gets an A to me. Play, I, she gets an A. Play me, but right. I think the truth is what I really care about is just getting to do the next thing i think so uh, in terms of professional is there anything that keeps me up professionally not really no you're I'm calm not, about it yeah, now yeah, yeah nothing bothers me so uh, just in a few sentences just
0: talk about what the routine is your daily routine
1: so usually i i get up i'll go play tennis um, around s- 7 you're
0: a comp- you were a competitive serious competitive yeah, tennis yeah
1: tennis was my my whole life growing up and so i'll play around 7 or 8 come back I'll write from nine to one, then I'll go to CrossFit and I train with the same trainer, you know, four or five days a week because I need somebody I can't be alone writing and then alone working out. I need somebody there. So you know, Dave's like one of my best friends now, and then I'll come back right again until about six thirty. and then I always get out of the house. Like I will never stay home after six thirty because I need a life. And know? when you're writing, You're generating pages that whole time? Yeah. or or, Are you off the internet? Mm, No, not really. I mean, I think what I'll do is I'll have it open, and then I'll start by revising what I did the day before, and then I'll go in. And what happens is I'll get to a point where I hit a wall, and my brain naturally is like – I think it's a frustration thing, and the valve is to sort of like step away, go to my phone, or go to the internet for like – 30 seconds. And that
0: can be dating sites or Twitter. It doesn't matter.
1: Well, I don't know if dating sites during the day because then I'll get drunk. Too to much the other too hole whole of anxiety. Too old to resolve the problem. The
0: for me, Twitter is – people are often asking, how can you write so much and be on Twitter? And it's because tw- when you see me on Twitter, it's after I've written a scene. Yeah. I That's what seen. I – I will write a scene
1: and then give myself 10 minutes on Twitter and then go write a but scene. But you can do Twitter. I can't do Twitter. Twitter, Twitter to me is just like – It just makes sense to me. But I think it's also cuz you're writing dialogue and see, it's like it's so like yeah it just makes sense to me. Yeah, it's yeah. I can't that just makes sense to me as an outlet.
0: It doesn't distract like I can walk away from it for as long as I but it's a great outlet and I I find the connectedness to the world. Yeah. suits exactly who I am very well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I the ways in which I can build real, real make real relationships with people. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And part of that is cuz I
1: have a bit of a follow like there's ways that you can i think because you yeah you've created your own little community within a community and and you can sort of dip into that community because you're the leader of it you know uh,
0: yeah i yeah it's um somehow that just works but it but it is i will so i'll have twitter open or over on the other side of the computer but i won't look at it until i'm if i'm in a groove yeah. i'm writing 100%. But then when I get to the end of a scene or a moment or like, you know, then I'll either take a walk or I'll just go look at Twitter for
1: 10 yeah, minutes, yeah. change my state, and then get back
0: That's it. to so the work. So you have to change
1: your state. I think writers who are like, oh, I need three or four hours of uninterrupted concentration. I think, I don't know, I would go crazy.
0: So one of the things, and just to, to to wrap up, that these, I noticed these kids all got from you and they kept mm-hmm. talking to you through college, was this sort of counsel and advice. and. I will say I've seen uh, – like I say, you basically tutored Sam in ninth grade and st- have, are still close friends with him. You guys still have dinners all the time and all that shit. Yeah. But what is – for a young person who thinks they're, they are they want to do the arts, mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what is your sort of advice to them? How would you tell them to think about it? Someone who's 20, 21 years old and, and feels like they have this stuff inside them that they need to express.
1: I think they have to take the pressure off it. You know, like the – I think what they have to do is do the work, but find a way to make money in a different way at first. Because if you're just going to be a full-time artist and live on your parents' dime or your savings or, or something like that, it's too much pressure. The, the road to success as an artist is half work and half timing and luck and all those things. And so to me it was, you know, find a way to pay the rent, but find a way to pay the rent that also lets you privilege the work, even if it means you have to work nights, you know, in my case, um, you know, that's what, what mattered to me. Yes. Find a way to do work that allows
0: you to privilege the art, that, that work. Yes, yeah,
1: If the art is that if you are hellbent bent and you believe you have the gift, and I think you have to be honest with yourself on whether you have the gift. Do you believe it? I think we disagree on this. Let's talk about you it. You think everybody. Here's do what you think. I think. <laughs> okay. No.
0: I don't. Here's the real opinion. Yeah. You need talent, but I don't think uh, talent reveals itself the same way for everybody. Okay. And so what I think is without putting it – yes, it's a – listen, it's a fucking crapshoot as to whether you can make a living as an artist. Yeah, of course. Nobody's guaranteeing you a living as an artist or as anything. Yeah. But other than in very, very rare cases, the only way to find out if you have the talent to do it is by doing it with great rigor yeah. A lot. Yeah. And if you're not dissuaded, so, yeah, if you're doing it and you're still getting something out of doing it, and like you said, you haven't blown up your whole life. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you're making a living. You're painting houses. You're doing whatever you have to do yeah. to make a living. And you're showing up every day to do the work. Maybe the talent reveals itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly you're able to produce work. I, I, no, I often say, look, I could never finish anything. I could never, I could never get to the end of something I wanted yeah. to write. I had seven incompletes my senior year, I was ADHD, all this stuff. Yeah. But I knew, I did know that if I wrote two paragraphs, people would react, I, I knew I had an, a, a facility with words. It's a, I did yeah. know I had a facility with words. Now, the terrible painful frustration for me when I wanted to die all the time was I couldn't do anything with it. But I did know I was the worst kind of fucker because yeah. I knew I had the talent
1: to do this and i didn't have what i thought i didn't have the will i was too lazy so interesting because i think this is the the difference between us you were you were searching for the way to get it done yes you need to get it done i needed someone to give me a shot those were, so it's like right. i think you have to identify you mean you needed someone to say to you you're you can do this no i needed somebody to Like, I knew I could produce it. So, like, I had a lot of near misses, you know, with, like, almost getting a movie made, all these things. I needed the break. But you were still very young when that happened. Sort of. I mean, the book first book got published when I was 31. So, it was still, like, I'd been tutoring then for six or seven years. Yeah, but,
0: like, Rounders happened for me when I was 30. So, 30, 31. So,
1: which at the time felt late, but in fact
0: is still fairly young. Yes, I did have the confidence that if I could produce good enough for the, the work, that then I would find a way to
1: get it into the world. Right.
0: My battle was to get the work done. Yeah. Um, but everyone has a different battle. specific That's kind it. of the ba- battle. I think you have
1: to know what your battle is. It's true. And be willing to wage it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Soman Anani, thank you for being here. This is Did we cover fun. stuff? Oh my God. Is there God. anything you we wish we covered?
1: Through. We got through a lot. This is fantastic.
0: All right, great. You can find Soman on Twitter. Um, he has. You can go to his website,
1: which is somanchanani.net and then I'm on Instagram
0: buy uh, the he's on Instagram too buy the books <laughs> for the 14 year old in your life
1: yeah I think it, it works for kids, teenagers you know some adults
0: <laughs> buy the books and um, follow Soman and get into his world um, he's one of the most impressive dudes oh God. that I know I'm just
1: lucky to have met you guys
0: Soman thanks for being <laughs> here talk well, to us thanks you soon. Again. hey you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter want to email me the moment, BK. At gmail.com, and um, see you next time.